pew Bible. Open them to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you, As evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. On the day of visitation, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, is there any greater privilege than to be able to come before you as your people and hear you speak to us from your word? There isn't. Lord, we come before you as a people who are hungry, a people who are in desperate need of you. Lord, we need your word and we need to feast upon your son, Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, just like we need food for our bodies, even more so. And so we come before you this morning asking that you would pour out your grace upon us this morning. That we would not just see the rituals or hear the music or hear the words preached by the preacher, but Lord, we would see through them to the reality that is being presented before us, your son, Jesus Christ. It is him that we need, Lord. And so we cry out for your spirit to accompany the means of grace as they are administered this morning. And I pray that you would use them to radically transform us and ultimately, Father, that you would be glorified. We ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, our conquering King, Jesus. Amen. Well, on this day in history, July 4th, the year of our Lord, 1776, these United States of America declared their independence from the kingdom of Great Britain. And I, for one, am extremely thankful for that. Anybody else? Anybody else thankful for that? You're just raising your hands. That's great. We're a very silent group. We just, we don't like to say amen. We just raise our hands. That's good. So, for those of you that raised your hands, happy Independence Day to all of you. And you you know what's fascinating to me about the 4th of July? I mean, when you really stop and think about it, it's literally a day in which we celebrate our founding father's rebellion against the British Empire. And I don't know how often we sit back and actually think about that. 
that we've set aside a day of the year to, to celebrate our rebellion against the British Empire. Often, we just get excited about the three-day weekend, right? I know I'm excited about it. I don't know about anybody else. Or the fireworks and the time that we get to hang out together and enjoy food and barbecue. But we don't really ask ourselves the question, what are we celebrating today? And the truth is that we're celebrating the fact that we enjoy the freedoms that we do today. The freedom to worship freely this morning. Because our founding fathers rebelled against the tyranny of the British Empire. You see, our country was literally born out of rebellion. We wouldn't exist as a country if it weren't for the rebellion of our founding fathers. And I'm I'm thankful to God for that. I'm thankful that they were willing to sacrifice their lives for our freedoms, to ensure our freedoms. But you know what the problem is? The problem is, as fallen human beings, we love rebellion whether it's justified or not, don't we? We love rebellion. And the reason we love rebellion, I don't know if you've noticed this in your own heart, I've noticed it in mine, is because when we rebel against authority, we get to call the shots. Or at least challenge the authority and say, we're not going to listen to you, we're going to do what we want, we're the ones in control. And yet, our rebellion especially our spiritual rebellion against God is the source of all the pain and suffering and death and loss in the world. Our spiritual rebellion is the cause of all the things that we hate most in this world. Think of it. If Adam and Eve hadn't rebelled against God in the garden by eating of the fruit of the tree, the fall never would have happened. If Adam and Eve's children hadn't given themselves over unabashedly to sin, the worldwide flood, which was horrific, wouldn't have happened. If Pharaoh hadn't rebelled against God in Egypt by refusing to let God's people go and worship him in the desert, the ten plagues wouldn't have happened. If Israel hadn't rebelled against God by refusing to conquer Canaan out of fear of defeat, they wouldn't have wandered in the desert For 40 years. And if we, brothers and sisters, didn't rebel against God on a daily, hourly basis, we wouldn't feel so distant from Him, would we? You see, rebellion against God is not what we were created for, it's unnatural. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he commanded them to exercise dominion over all creation in service to him, to the praise of his glory. God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. God commanded them to not eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. And while they obeyed God, they flourished. Don't we see that? God walked with them in the cool of the garden and they experienced joyful bliss as they submitted themselves to God's rule and reign. It wasn't until after they rebelled that they suffered under God's displeasure. You see, we were not created to rebel against God. As human beings, it's, it's a part and parcel to what we were created for, to live in submission to him. And the good news this morning, the good news this morning is that Jesus has come to redeem us from our rebellion and its consequences. Because we need a substitute, don't we? The way to get yourself back in a right relationship with God isn't by trying to submit yourself to him because God requires perfect submission and none of us in this room can do that. 
None of us can fill that righteous requirement that God has. And that's why Jesus came. In our fallen state, we hated God. We didn't want to submit to God's rule. We wanted to rebel against it and overthrow it so we could take his place. And that's why Jesus came. He perfectly loved and obeyed the Father as we were required to in our place. And because we are now united to Jesus by faith, we are considered perfectly righteous by God. In our fallen state, we deserve to suffer for all eternity in hell under the wrath of Almighty God for our sins. We deserved nothing from God but wrath for our rebellion against his rule. And again, that's why Jesus had to come on the cross. He bore the penalty for our sins in his body. He experienced the wrath of Almighty God in our place. He experienced the hell that you and I deserve in our place so that we wouldn't have to. And because we are now united to him by faith, we are forgiven all of our sins so that God now sees us as if we had never rebelled against him. And because Jesus rose again, he didn't just stay dead, he rose again, conquering the grave and ascended to the Father's right hand, we have now been raised to newness of life in him. Because he lives, we live as well. Jesus is our life. And the the incredible truth is that we are now a new creation in him. The old is gone and the new has come. And Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, giving us new desires so that we now long to obey him. Whereas we used to desire primarily to rebel against him, now we desire to submit to him and obey to him. We long to live in submission to God as believers. And the the Spirit empowers us and leads us and guides us to that end. And for myself... As one who is extremely rebellious, exceedingly rebellious, I am so thankful for the truth of the gospel because it is the power of God for all who believe. And it's because of that truth and because of that power that we now want to turn from our rebellion against God and live lives that glorify our Father in heaven. You see, now this is the most important thing. If you forget everything else I heard so far, hear this. The gospel, the gospel is the motivation for why we as Christians want to live in submission to God. Seeking to live in submission to God under the influence of any other motivation but the gospel is idolatry that God abhors. But a life lived in submission to God because of the gospel is worship that God adores because it gives him the glory and the honor and praise we don't try to steal that glory and honor for ourselves now the question naturally follows is what does submission to god look like practically what does that look like we understand the concept jason put some flesh on it so that's what we're going to do this morning our text gives us three examples of what submission to god looks like three examples of what submission to god looks like first of all Submission to God looks like waging war against the flesh. Waging war against the flesh. Second of all, submission to God looks like living honorably 
among unbelievers, living honorably among unbelievers. And thirdly, submission to God looks like submitting to earthly authority, submitting to earthly authority. So first of all, let's look at waging war against the flesh. Look at verse 11 with me. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, I want you to note something right from the start. The very first thing out of Peter's mouth in this whole exhortation is his address to them. And do you notice how he addresses them? What does he call them? He calls them beloved. He, all these moral exhortations that he's given, he ties to the fact, he says it flows out of the fact that you are beloved. And that points not only to the fact that they are beloved to Peter, but more importantly, that they are beloved to God himself. And the reason I draw that to your attention, brothers and sisters, is because in order for you to pursue waging war against the flesh, you have to understand, you have to understand that you are already loved by God. You're already loved by God. You don't go out there and try to wage war against the flesh to try to earn God's love to try to earn your status as one of God's beloved. In Jesus, you are the beloved of God. So I ask you right now, brothers and sisters, do you realize, do you ask yourself, do I realize that I am loved by the Father because of Jesus? Do you realize that? Are you rejoicing in that right now as we sit here? And the reason I ask that is because if you don't realize this truth, your war against the flesh as you go back out into the world is going to drive you crazy. It's going to drive you nuts. Believe me, I've spent my fair share of time trying to fight against the flesh in order to win God's approval, to win God's love, to win his acceptance. And as a result, I was so insecure. On the days I thought I was winning the battle, sure, I felt secure, but there was this gnawing fear eating away at me all the time. I, I was fearfully on guard all the time, fearful that I might lose the battle and lose God's affection. And on the days I thought I was completely losing it, I was overwhelmed with fear and guilt, telling myself, surely I've lost God's love, so I need to beat myself up for a while and then fight real hard so I can earn his love back again. But the truth is that God's love for you never changes it never changes. He loved you before time began. He loves you now and he will love you for all eternity because you are united to his son. And the way he loves his son is the way that he loves you. We are, brothers and sisters, the beloved of God. And it's because of that incredible truth that we wage war against the flesh. We don't wage war to earn his love. We wage war against the flesh because he has freely given it to us in Jesus. So, in light of that truth, well, how do we wage war against the flesh? How do we do it? And I think Peter gives us two ways in particular to wage war against the flesh. First of all, as Christians, we are to realize that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. This world is not our home. We're pilgrims on a journey headed to home, 
But we're not home yet. We're not there yet. And once you get a hold of that, once you realize that this world is not your home, that you're just passing through on your way to your true home, you're not going to value the things of this world like you used to. You're not going to. Let me give you an example. Imagine that, and some of you, this would be a dream come true. I know this would be a dream come true for my mom. Um, But imagine for you that I, I built your dream house. I know a lot of you have your dream house in mind. Some of you live in your dream house, so that's great. I've seen some of your houses, and I, I, they're my dream house, just so you know. Um, but anyway, so imagine I built this dream house, all right, just the way you always wanted it, furnished the way you want. It's got everything you want inside of there. And not only that, it's in the state that you always wanted to live in, whichever state that may be. And more than that, this is what you're really going to love. All of the friends and family that you love, because I know you don't necessarily love all of your family. No, you should. But all of the friends and family that you love are going to live in the same neighborhood as you. And all you have to do, the only stipulation, I'm going to give that to you free and clear, is that you jump in your car and head there right now. Don't pack anything. You don't need anything. It's all there. It's all at this house. Now, let's say that you agree. You're like, all right, I'm getting in my car. I'm going to go. I'm really excited about this. Now, on your way, on your journey to this veritable heaven on earth, do you think you're going to be very tempted to stop along the way and sightsee or to to stop at stores and buy random junk to take with you to to your new house? You think you, I don't think so either. I know I'm not going to be. I'm going to want to get there as quickly as possible with the fewest amount of distractions as possible. I'm only going to stop to eat and, and, and get nourishment and get gas and sleep as I need to. But I'm not going to dilly-dally. I want to get there as soon as possible. And what Peter is telling us here is that that is the way we should view our time here on this earth. We are travelers pilgrims with a promised and glorious destination in mind we are on our way home to god as we keep that destination firmly fixed in our mind we will find it easier to turn away from these temporary pleasures which promise so much but deliver so little And as we grow in our longing for the joy set before us in eternity in the presence of Jesus, we will find new strength to pass over the lesser joys that sin offers. And we'll begin to see that the pleasures of sin in this world aren't worth comparing to the pleasures of glory that await us at the right hand of the Father. The second way to fight the flesh that Peter gives us is to abstain from or starve the desires of the flesh. To abstain from or starve the desires of the flesh. Now, we're going to do another silly thought experiment, and you know how weird these can get for me. So just just go with me. Uh, Bear with me. Let's imagine, in light of abstaining and starving out the flesh, that, that the American troops are in a conflict against some enemy soldiers in Afghanistan. Got the situation, and we're obviously on the American side. We're a part of this. And let's imagine that the American troops just inflicted a decisive victory against the enemy soldiers, okay? They just crushed them. Doesn't mean that they killed all of them, but they crushed them. And some of the surviving enemy soldiers escaped to this compound. That's where they all congregated, this little compound. And we as, enemy, as American soldiers surrounded them. We had them completely cut off. They have no line of supply whatsoever. No ammunition is coming in, no food, no water's coming in. They're out in the desert. And so that's the situation. We've got them surrounded. And imagine that our general calls us and says, all right, here's the tactic. The tactic is you're going to starve them out. 
And then when they attack, they'll be so weak from starvation and not having water that they'll be easily defeated or they're just going to surrender, period. Okay, those are our orders. And because we want to get some of them alive, we can't just bomb them. (laughs) We want to get some of the prisoners and get information from them. All right, so that's the situation. Now imagine that one of your fellow troops you find out is smuggling food to the enemy soldiers. How would you feel about that? Would you be pretty upset? I would be livid. I would be very upset. And my, I would probably think one of two things about this guy. I would think, one, he's either a traitor, or two, he's a blockhead who's not taking our enemy very seriously. I would be thinking one of those two things. And I want you to realize, brothers and sisters, that that is our situation in our battle against the flesh. In our story, the great victory that our troops experienced was done for us by Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus has soundly defeated our flesh so that we are no longer slaves to it. We've got the enemy on the run. We've got him surrounded. We're free to fight against it. And the flesh is like the enemy soldiers that are entrapped in the compound. And we are like the troops that have the enemy surrounded. But unfortunately, I don't know if you found yourself in the story, but we're also like the foolish soldier who is feeding the enemy troops. We're like the American soldier who's feeding the American troops. Every time we entertain sinful thoughts and desires or commit sinful actions, it's as if we're feeding the enemy that we have been commanded to starve out. Let me ask you, do you think of your sin that way? Do you think of your sin that way? Do you think of your sin as feeding the enemy that God has told you to starve to death? You should. Because it's true. And you know why I think we do it? Why I think we feed the enemy? First of all, because like I said, we, this is what the, the American soldier who's feeding the enemy does. He doesn't realize how seriously dangerous the enemy is. We don't take the flesh very seriously, do we? We don't see it as the threat that it actually is. We don't realize, as Peter says, that the flesh is waging war against our souls. We don't realize that our flesh wants to destroy us. We treat the flesh like it's just a playmate that we can play games with. Like it's just trying to give us a few good times here and there. But make no mistake, your flesh is like the playmate who's trying to slip a little cyanide in your your bottle to kill you. Sure, it, it may taste good, but in the end, it's bitter and it'll destroy you. The flesh wants you to feed it so it can become strong and defeat you in battle. So don't give it the opportunity. Starve it out. Keep it weak. Second of all, there's a traitor in each one of us, isn't there? So it's not surprising that we feed the flesh. Unfortunately, we all get a thrill out of being a traitor against God. Sin is pleasurable. And so we don't want to see the flesh die. We don't want to starve it out. We want to keep it around like a little pet on a leash. And we think we're in control of it. But what you over time realize is you can't control the flesh. You start feeding it, it's going to get big enough to just wreck your life and bring much dishonor to God and his people. But what we have to remind ourselves of is that the problem with sin isn't that it's too pleasurable. It's that it's not pleasurable enough. We were created for so much more, brothers and sisters, than we settle for. And that's the truth you need to realize in order to starve out the enemy. You have to remind yourself that the flesh exists to destroy your joy in Jesus. 
And then you will go on to wage war against the flesh in order to fight for your joy in Jesus. So how does this work out practically? Great, Jason, I understand it, but how does that work out practically? Well, let me give you a few examples. When you are tempted, I had to do this just this morning, as a matter of fact, when you are tempted to entertain judgmental thoughts about someone else, starve those sinful desires by rejoicing in the fact that you don't need to put others down to make yourself feel better. Jesus is your justification, not your ability to live a better life than someone else. Instead of judging that person, pray for them. Pray for them. Thank God for them. Or when you are tempted to give into fearful thoughts and let your mind entertain all of the what-ifs of life, starve those sinful desires by rejoicing in the fact that God is your heavenly Father who is in control of all things and knows what you need before you even ask for it. Instead of panicking, pray. Present your request to God with joy and thanksgiving. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. He's gonna take care of it. So you see how this works? You starve the desires of the flesh by gorging yourself on the glories of the gospel and the promises of God's word. So we've seen that submission to God looks like waging war against the flesh. Secondly, let's see how submission to God looks like living honorably among unbelievers. Living honorably among unbelievers. Look at verses 12 with me. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I want you to note that Peter's expectation of Christians is what? His expectation of them is that they're going to be among unbelievers. They're going to be spending time around those who do not call themselves Christians, who are not Christians. And I think that's important to note because we as Christians usually respond to unbelievers in one of two ways. We usually think about interaction with unbelievers in one of two ways. You ready? On the one hand, some of us want to be separatists when it comes to unbelievers. That is, we just want to lob truth grenades at unbelievers, attack them, and then have nothing to do with them. We just want to run away. We don't want to spend time with them. We don't want to talk with them. We don't want to share life with them. We just want to attack them and then retreat into our little holy huddle. That's how some of us interact with unbelievers. We keep them at arm's length. On the other hand, some of us want to be mainstream and popular with unbelievers, that is, we embrace everything that they do and say and believe, and we don't really teach them the truth. We want so badly to spend time with them and talk with them and share life with them that we don't make a stand for the truth at all. And what Peter is telling us here is that we aren't to interact with unbelievers in either one of those ways. We aren't to completely separate ourselves from them on the one hand or completely embrace them on the other. What God calls us to is the difficult path, and this is why we don't like to take it because it requires lots of wisdom, of living among unbelievers honorably while challenging them with the truth of the gospel. We don't run away from them, nor do we sell out to them. Instead, we live our lives in the midst of them, pouring ourselves out for them, serving them, and speaking the truth to them in love. That's what God has called us to do. And let me give you a few practical ways to do that. Just, just two of them. First of all, work diligently at your vocation. Work diligently at your vocation. 
Most of you spend a good portion of your day in the presence of unbelievers as you work. So work diligently among them, not as unto men, but unto the Lord. And you will be amazed, trust me, you will be amazed at the opportunities he will bring your way to speak the truth of the gospel into, into people's lives as you work diligently. One of the, the guys in my small group was sharing that with me last week, how some guy just came up to him and started asking him all these questions. Why? Because he was, he was listening to the Bible on audio and he overheard it. And so he started asking him these questions and it turned into a great opportunity. And even when the unbelievers you work with speak evil against you, you will be able to bear witness to Christ by your honorable life. Now that doesn't mean that you'll never sin in front of them. It means that when you do, you'll bear witness to Christ by honorably repenting and making restitution for the sins that you have committed against them. So work diligently at your job in the presence of unbelievers. Second of all, invite your unbelieving neighbors to share your life with you. Invite them into your lives and share it with them. Pursue them. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have healthy, wise boundaries, but I am saying that you need to share your life with your neighbors. And it can be real simple. Invite them over for dinner. Bring them cookies. Figure out what they like to do for fun and go do it with them. Again, the opportunities to share the gospel will be incredible. And this is why we're here. Just to remind you all, this is why we're here, brothers and sisters, to share the good news about Jesus with those who don't know them. And the only way we'll be able to share that good news is if we're in the world and yet not of the world. But we have to be among them in order to share Christ with them. So that's something we need to pursue. So we've seen that submission to God looks like waging war against the flesh, living honorably among unbelievers, and thirdly, let's see how submission to God looks like submitting to earthly authorities. Submitting to earthly authorities. Look at verses 13 through 17 with me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Here, Peter reminds his readers and us that we are to submit ourselves to the governing authorities currently ruling over them. And this would have been very difficult for Peter's hearers to to swallow because who was the emperor at the time? Does anybody know? It was Nero, the same Nero who wrapped Christians in wax and lit them on fire to serve as torches in his garden. That's who they were to submit to. The same Nero who falsely blamed the great fire in Rome on Christians so that they could then be persecuted. That's the one they were to submit to. The same Nero who had Christians horrifically slain in the Colosseum by gladiators and lions and wild dogs for sport. They were to submit to him. So being told that they needed to submit to him would would be really difficult to hear, as you can imagine. And before we try to apply these verses to our own situation, to our current situation, I need to tell you that I think submission to the government then and and submission to the government now look very different. Submission to the government then and now look very different. Now why is that? What's the difference? 
Well, very simply put, the Christians that Peter wrote to were under a different form of government than we are now. The Christians that Peter wrote to were under an authoritarian form of government. So the government was essentially of the emperor, by the emperor, and for the emperor. In other words, there was no law higher than the emperor. So disobedience to him meant certain death. It was his way or the highway. So unquestioned submission was the only option they had. We, on the other hand, live under a democratic form of government. We elect officials who represent us. We live in a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So cooperation, cooperation with the government is our duty and our right and our privilege. And you want to know the main way that we cooperate with our government, the, way, the main way that we as average Americans cooperate with our government? It's by voting. It's by voting. Now, don't worry. I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and try to tell you how you should vote. But I will tell you this. Part of, God, of your God-given duty to submit to the government is to vote. Under the form of government which we find ourselves, this is a huge part of submission. We have the duty and privilege and responsibility of electing representatives who will pass just laws in order to promote that which is good and restrain that which is evil. So voting is an extremely important part of submission for us as Christians now. And the other huge part of submission is respecting and obeying the laws and authorities that God has put over us. We're to do that. We're to respect and obey the, the, the politicians and the laws that God has put over us. Now that's not to say that we never have a justifiable reason to exercise civil disobedience, but we only do so as a last resort. And you may be wondering, well, how am I supposed to know when that is? How do I know when to exercise civil disobedience as a last resort? And the answer is really simple. Anytime man's law demands from you that you violate God's law, you have to violate man's law. You have to submit. God's law trumps everything else. God's law trumps man's law. Does that make sense? So, for example, if some, some government officials came up to me after this service and, and chat and said, you guys can't preach the gospel anymore. If you preach the gospel again, we'll throw you into prison and we'll try you and you'll never get out. Well, you'll just circulate in the, the prison system the rest of your life. If they came up and told us that, guess what we'd have to say? Well, come arrest us then because we're not going to stop. We'd have to take the same stance that the disciples did in the early book of Acts when the Pharisees told them, don't preach the gospel anymore, otherwise we're going to beat you again. And they went away rejoicing, first of all, that they got beat and said, we can't. We, we, you, you decide whether it's right for us or do this or not, but we have to submit to God, not to man. So that's, that's when we exercise civil disobedience. And there are times for us to do that. Thankfully, by God's grace, we're not there yet in our country. But what does this look like for us practically today? What does it look like for us to submit to our earthly government? Well, as I already mentioned, first of all, vote. It, it amazes me how many people don't fulfill their, their God-given responsibility to vote. So do it. Vote. Secondly, pay your taxes. Real simple. These are really easy, aren't they? Do you realize that Jesus paid his taxes? You remember that instance where Jesus needed to pay his taxes? Now, Jesus had a different way of getting his money to pay his taxes. You remember the story? He sent Peter out to go catch a fish. Then Peter opened up the fish's mouth and pulled out a coin. <laughs> you don't get to do that. Well, maybe you do, but I don't. 
But you need to pay your taxes. As Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And lastly, this is a big one. And this is probably the one that we're worst at. Pray for your governing officials. We're told time and time again to do that throughout the scriptures, to raise holy hands and pray for all so that we can live peaceably and see the gospel furthered. But how often do we do that? We don't do it very often. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced if we spent half as much time, and I can include myself in this, if we spent half as much time um, praying for them as we do complaining about them, we'd probably see some real changes take place. We probably would. And it's important to do because God commands us to do it. And I think really importantly too, it reminds us that ultimately politicians aren't the ones in control. God is. And our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdom of God and of his Christ. So, unbelievers here this morning, you are in, I'm going to cut it for you real, real clean. You are in rebellion against God. You're in rebellion against God. You hate him. You, you may not say those words, but by your life and in your heart, you want to overthrow his rule and reign and take his place. That's your situation. And the sad truth is that, that you're incapable of doing anything else because you're at enmity with God. You're at enmity with God. And your only hope, your only hope, since you can't be submissive enough to him to get into a right standing with him, is to have a substitute who was perfectly submissive on your behalf, who perfectly submitted himself in his life and perfectly submitted himself in his death in your place. And that substitute is Jesus. He's your only hope. So cry out to him. Look to him. Stop looking to your own rebellion as, fi- as the source of your joy or trying to, to, to earn your, your right way with God. Put those things aside. You need to look to Jesus and trust in him. Cry out to him. Pray that he would change your heart because you can't change your own heart. He has to do it. Believers here this morning, As always, we have so much to rejoice over, so much to be thankful for. Our motivation for submitting ourselves to God is the gospel. Jesus perfectly submitted himself to God in our place during his life, and we are now clothed with his perfect submission. And Jesus perfectly submitted himself to God in our place during his death on the cross, And we are now forgiven all of our sins by his blood. And we now have the Holy Spirit living within us, dwelling within us, empowering us so that we not only desire to live in submission to God, but we are actually able to live in submission to God. Therefore, let us do so by waging war against the flesh. This world is not our home, so let us store up treasure for ourselves in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. The flesh is our enemy, so let us starve it and put it to death. Don't feed it. And let us live in submission to God by living honorably among unbelievers. May we not completely separate or completely embrace them but rather sacrificially serve them by speaking the truth to them in love, that they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. And lastly, let us live in submission to God by submitting to earthly authorities. May we be diligent in submitting to the authorities God has put over us, realizing that we are manifesting our ultimate trust, not in them, but in him. You see, the freedom 
that we all long for, every single one of us, the freedom that we were created for isn't found in rebellion against authority, but in submission to all authority for the sake of Christ. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, our conquering king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the incredible privileges that you have given to us as your beloved. We acknowledge that we are only your beloved because we are in Christ, the beloved. We're united to him and we're now forgiven our sins and considered righteous in him. And all of our rebellion is forgiven and dealt with and we're clothed with his righteousness so we are now seen as perfectly submissive, as submissive as Christ was. And so Lord, we now want to live in accordance with that reality, with our new status in Jesus before you. We long to live now as submissive servants of you. And thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit who gives us not only the the desires to do so, but the power to be able to do so. So Lord, we ask that you would empower us all the days of our lives to wage war against the flesh, to not feed it, Lord, as pleasurable as that may seem to be for a time. May we realize that the flesh wants to destroy us. So may we declare all-out warfare and put it to death daily in light of the fact that Jesus has completely conquered the flesh on our behalf. So may we continue the guerrilla warfare and destroy it and put them to death each and every day, realizing that we are sojourners and exiles on our way home to paradise at your right hand. And Father, may we live honorably, live honorable lives among unbelievers, not retreating from them, and not simply embracing everything that they think, do, and say, but Lord, teaching them the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to them, and living honorably in accordance with your word so that we might bring you the glory and the honor and the praise, that they might give you the glory as they see us do so. And Father, I pray that you would teach us, because we are so bad at this, to be submissive to the earthly authorities that you have put over us. Lord, we pray for our governing officials. We pray that we would respect them and continually pray for them, knowing, Lord, that unless you intervene, it's all just, unless you restrain their wicked hearts, we're just going to continue to become more and more corrupt, and things are going to get worse. And so may we cry out to you, but may we cry out to you realizing that our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world. We long for the day when Jesus will come and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, teach us to be submissive to our governing authorities. To, Lord, our parents, if we're still children in here. Lord, to be submissive to our bosses. Lord, to be submissive according to whatever our familial roles are, submissive to one another, loving each other, wanting to imitate Christ who was perfectly submissive in our place. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for what you've taught us this morning. And we pray that we would now go out into the world and be lights shining in the darkness, reflecting the glory of the great light of the world, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our time of worship together.